0: First of all, good afternoon to all of you, to our visitors to Singapore from the Asia Pacific region. It's a pleasure to meet all of you, and I have to thank Alan John and IPS for this opportunity to meet with the Asian journalists. Alan was right. I've worked in the newspapers before. I was a stringer. I worked for Free Press, and I was paid was it 63 and a half cents per square inch column if I got published. I think it was 63 and a half cents. If you sent in a photograph with a caption, you were paid a bit more, but I was not very good with cameras, so I never sent in photographs. But it's a real pleasure working with you, and I have worked for Vietnam Press. Uh, All this before I went to the university. I was trying to earn an extra buck, and uh, I, a Vietnamese uh, journalist, Nguyen Trong, Tony Nguyen Trong, uh, hired me and I worked for him. My job, he would mark off all the stories. And my job was to press it and he just sent it back to Vietnam. And the uh, North and the South were fighting in those days. And I said, So what do you do? He, since I am pressing all this stuff for you, he said, I write features. So once in two weeks, he sends fe- features to. And, all. and after a while, I thought I was not paid enough and I quit. So, but, uh, so I feel very comfortable with all of you. I am not going to really uh, do that much analysis in my opening statements because I ask myself, you are at the center of things, you know the events, you analyze the events, and what you write becomes data for me as a university professor to work on so that I can further analyse and maybe theorise from there. So I asked myself, what can I say that can be really useful for you? I thought maybe I would just uh, make a few broad statements, paint the world in a few strokes of what I see happening. Instead of saying Singapore, Asia and the world, I'm going to start with the world then how it impacts on Singapore and Asia. But I am most happy to answer any question on Singapore, as uh, Alan John has listed. Some of them are quite boring, actually. But uh, I'm happy to answer any question uh, you have on Singapore. In fact, I would be delighted to do so. Let me begin by saying that uh, we are lurching from crisis to crisis, from shock to shock. Man made and natural disasters. This is a new normal, as you know. And even as we are still mulling over the black swans of 2016, which is Brexit and the election of uh, Donald J. Trump as the 45th president of the United States, now we are already looking at Kim Jong un and the prospect and the knowledge that North Korea has a nuclear bomb and all these nuclear, uh, you know, the missiles that they will mount to send, shoot all over. There are typhoons, there are hurricanes, climate change, and lately we just watched the Las Vegas shooting. It never stops. There are many disruptive changes in world affairs. Let me just list them for you, and by listing them, I'm telling you I'm open to answering questions, and I will try to show how they impact on Singapore. I think the first change which impacts on the global scene is something that impacts also particularly for the Asia-Pacific, and that is a changing world order and the rise of new powers and how that can be accommodated. You are familiar with it you would have written about this. The old regional or, or the existing international order which is one dominated by the United States. And in the Asia Pacific, the United States was predominant. It was a hegemon for one short period. But hegemons don't last that long. You have your hegemonic moment, then other coalitions emerge to try to effect and have uh, some impact on decisions but that order the United States predominance in the region is changing I think what is uncertain for us is that the new order has not emerged China is rising soon to come is India and you have um, Japan rebooting but now there's an added factor North Korea DPRK with a nuclear bomb that is nuclearized That changes a lot of things, too, because that will make them a player as well. But it is not, in fact, decided. I am not saying the United States is going to withdraw and leave the sea, far from it. The United States today still has military capacity and power way beyond any other country power in the region. What it spends on the military is more than what all the countries, China and every other country combined in the world. That's the gap. And its economy is picking up where one time it was, you know, in fact seen to be in the doldrums and after the financial crisis. But I think the predominance, the time of U.S. predominance is over, partly because the United States itself is rethinking what it wants in terms of leadership, how it will play that role and Mr. Trump's election demonstrates it, although I would argue it was there with President Obama because he wanted to leap from behind. But the idea that the United States is going to intervene in every action, that's gone. Uh, They will select what they want to intervene in. I think that's more like it. So the order is changing, is uncertain because we don't know what's going to emerge. The main thing is the relationship between the United States and China. China doesn't know. I know what China wants. China doesn't want the United States in the region. But they know they can't get rid of the United States. And I would say at this point with North Korea, with the nuclearization of the North Korean peninsula, the United States will be sought after even more. And I would say even China would want the United States around to deal with North Korea. So that's not taking place. And the United States knows it cannot have the same old situation. Status quo will not hold. But they don't know what to give and how to give. And China doesn't, hasn't really made it explicit what they want to ask because they don't know what to ask for. What they want to ask for, they can't get. So you will get this change that will happen and we are watching it, I think in a creeping sort of way. It's not going to be too, they sit down and bargain. It won't happen. But the change will be slow and creeping. And one day we say, hey, this is the new order. This is what it looks like. You know. So that is the changing world order. But what it also means is this, that I think values change somewhat. We've been, in fact, living in a world dominated by Anglo-American Western values. I'm not saying that's going away, but I think more other countries are entering into the conversation, other powers with their values. I was at the Singapore summit where Ho Kong Ping spoke, and I liked something he said, which I will share with you. He said, we are moving from, in fact, we will see the end of universalism, and we are moving into contextualism so I see the change in value or rather that dominance will be in fact uh, weakened and this contextualism will come about I remember when we said Asian values you know everybody sort of sort of didn't agree with Singapore and we were the lone voice saying that but I think we were a bit before our time but it was coming it's impossible and now after Iraq and Afghanistan and the difficulties of establishing uh, democracy there. You know, I used to say to my American friends, um, I hope you all are a bit more humble about how you approach democracy building. The second uh, trend I see globally is the rise of identity politics. You know, you see this in the United Kingdom, what is, how do you salvage, how do you preserve the English, British identity You don't want foreigners coming. Now, it's ended up with Brexit. I think in the United States, you are also seeing this rise of the identity, identity politics. And uh, it is, uh, you know, the not wanting foreigners, too many foreigners in the country. is nationalism, but it's identity. But I read a book, the one said, and Future Liberal by Mark Lila. I recommend it to you. I haven't finished it, but it's a really good book. He's a Democrat, and he said, the trouble with American politics today is that the Democrats have no answer to the Republicans because it's got caught up in identity politics. You know, it's um, African-American black lives, black lives, you know, black causes. Then it became uh, the minorities, women, LGBT, we are all going into minorities. But identity politics is splitting. It segregates. It doesn't unify. And so it is a problem that the Democrats will not find a unifying message. I just read Philip Stevens' column in yesterday's Financial Times. And he said it's self-determination is fighting with sovereignty. And it is sad and untenable that we think that the vote can decide these questions and it's also dangerous. So you, with identity politics, self-determination, and if you use the democratic vote all the time and believe that is the answer, 51% gives you, boom, a new country fragmentation is not very good. Um, the, and of course, in our own region. You know, there's uh, Rakhine State, Burmese, uh, the Burman identity. I now mean, had this problem too, but they're trying to resolve themselves. We have, um, you know, uh, Southeast Asia is very heterogeneous and there are these problems, <coughs> identity problems there. And because you are heterogeneous, multiracial, it is there. How do you handle it so that you don't go towards the kind of destructive identity politics but an awareness and appreciation of identity that will be constructive and will bring you back into a a group and whole and that's what Singapore is trying and I'll be happy to answer your questions on how we try that balance of giving confidence to people and comfort to people in their identity but also trying to create a nation out of these differences uh, the third point I want to make is in the world the trend is that I think Samuel Huntington was right there is a clash of civilizations you know in we Western liberals used to say when he came up with the thesis that it was wrong I think you have to revise that a bit and I think Islam the you know, says that they are different civilization, and um, there is a lack of understanding. But maybe it is not civilization because, there right, and here you are better than me. And you know, I'm not a Muslim, so I don't mean to offend if I say something that's not quite right. But I feel that it's not. There are different Islams and interpretations of Islam, so it's not even civilization. And then you have ISIS that are people using the name of Islam to create havoc and use it for terrorism. But I think there is a civilizational misunderstanding and some clash. So I think that's an issue. Um, The fourth, um, at first I didn't know whether to consider this an identity. The politics of identity but I decided it's more a civilizational uh, issue so I put it as a trend separate. The fourth trend is this I think the democratic model is being questioned now even in the West you know and you see a lot of writings by thoughtful liberals and thoughtful uh, Europeans, Americans, the British who say that you have to reinvent democracy The democratic model as they know or have known is not quite working. And certainly it seems to lead to, if the vote decides everything, you know, populism is one result, you know, identity politics is the other. And so it's how you reinvent um, uh, the democratic model. I read this book, The Fourth Revolution, by uh, Micklethwaite and uh, who's now the Bloomberg uh, Editor-in-Chief, I think, John Micklethwaite, and Alan Woldridge. The, he, they both were editors in The Economist. Micklethwaite went to the United States. I think Wooldridge is still with The Economist. The Fourth Revolution. And they, they argued that actually the democratic model in Britain, for instance, does not handle the pressures of today, because it's the vote, and so leaders cannot take action. It's the majority vote. And he said the pressing issue is how you handle entitlements and balance the budget, fiscal prudence and entitlements. And how do you say, I can't give you this? And so he's just that step- they are looking at the European um, dilemma. But I think they raised this question. And a friend of mine, Ana Palacio, who was the foreign minister of uh, Spain, has been writing very actively over Catalonia. And she, she wrote this piece, just had a Wall Street Journal piece, but she said it is the democratic malaise. And she feels that really if you just let people who feel they want their identity to vote, it's really troublesome you know, because then you, again, I did that, you just fragmented, it's not just Spain, she says, the rest of Europe, there are so many different um, pockets, are they going to split? So I think serious um, uh, liberals, serious Europeans and Americans are thinking, how do you reinvent democracy? They're not saying you abandon democracy, but it's really to reinvent, and how do you treat democracy to work better? And lastly, the trend is globalization. And uh, the question is, is this the end of globalization after all the crisis? I don't think so. It's too deep. But I expect globalization to morph. It'll morph into something, more or less. And we will learn how to deal with it, how to protect our citizens, how to you know, make sure freedom of flow, free flow of capital, um, labor, people are in, I guess, in measures that we can all handle. Um, And finally, there's disruptive technology we must all think about. And how does it all impact on Singapore? I think we are scratching our heads. You know, Singapore, as my leaders would have told you, you saw the ministers, they would have all told you in different ways, you know, we are a small country, we're very open, We have to live, we have to be open to live, you know. And uh, we are a price taker, you know, we are not a price setter. And to survive in the world, we have to understand the world and we have to understand the trends and prepare for the trends so you're always at the cusp of change and you can take advantage. We and ASEAN are handling the change in the order. We're trying that and uh, it's not always so easy but i think some alignments and realignments are taking place you know but um, i think this is something we have to deal with in a big way and be aware of it Um, the i think in terms of the identity politics um, i think we are dealing with it elected president you know i'm happy to answer questions as i said singapore is one, we are trying to give comfort to people's individual identities to say it's legitimate to, be, to express your identity but, and to be proud of your identity, but you have to be a nation at the same time. So I'm happy to answer those questions, but we knew of this problem long ago. This new identity politics, that's new for the West. For us, we've lived with it for very, from the birth of our nation. Uh, And uh, in terms of the um, ISIS, you know, uh, civilization clashes, I think we are, as a region, ASEAN is trying to deal with ISIS returnees to the region. You have Marawi, there's some concern that they may be uh, on the borders at Rakhine State, you know, so uh, it's an issue that is not far from us. Malaysia is... uh, alert about this, Indonesia is alert, Singapore is very alert, and the Philippines. So uh, we have to deal with this uh, problem. And uh, well, democratic model, we've always thought we had to reinvent our own model and Singapore has a model of its own. Uh, but globalization, I think Singapore is very concerned that the, the um, disillusionment with Globalization has led to greater protectionism, and some countries who are champions of free trade to move away from free trade. And we would like the message of free trade and maybe countries that support free trade to come together to keep free trade going, because that's the way the world goes forward. We will never be richer as a world, especially developing countries. We cannot develop if we all speak the message of protectionism. And the smaller countries really cannot afford to be protectionist. And in the world of 193 members at the UN, 107 are small countries by definition because you have 10 million and less in your population. So we all have to do something with that. And so I think I better stop here and let you ask questions.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Chan, for your very stimulating opening remarks. Uh, you've identified five trends, and I'm sure the audience is raring to go with uh, lots of questions, but I'm going to be a but bit I'm selfish. But I'm very happy to answer <laughs> Singapore questions. I'm going to be a bit selfish and um, have the moderator's prerogative to ask the first question. Um, you've had an illustrative, illustrious career um, as an ambassador to the U.S., um, by all accounts, you were extremely well respected in Washington circles, and you did a sterling job for Singapore. Um, but my question to you is, how more challenging uh, will it be for our Foreign Service officials and their Asian counterparts to master diplomacy with China as regards to your first, the first trend that you identified of uh, changing world order? Um,
0: well, I think the first thing one has to do is to understand the country you want to operate with and work with. And uh, many of us here, you know, we've been, as I said, lived in the Pax Americana. And it was not just, and it, before it was Pax Britannica, the Western values were much better pervaded and we read, and really the soft power of many Western values, you know, re- is very seductive and they have technology, they have films, they have television, books, magazines, everything, to promote it, then companies, you work in the companies, that's also getting into the values. Most of us don't really know China very well, and we need to understand India too, you know, and we don't understand Japan very well, but we really need to understand China. And I think unless you understand China and the Chinese mind, you can't really do... As good diplomacy. Uh, And I hope we are. Singapore has a a group of people. I mean, we can study Mandarin, but that's not good enough. You really have to be good in it. Can you crack jokes in it? And, you know. So I think learning the culture is important, and that would help in the um, diplomacy. It's really about getting to know each other, and that's what's great about ASEAN. Because although people say we are a talk shop, we really got to know each other, and you interact and develop a comfort level. We have to de- develop comfort levels with China, I think. you know, Much more, rather than just functionally work, you know, dealing with them transactionally. I think that tends to happen with every country, you know. You want something from China? You ask China, would you build my railway? Will you build my, you know, um, Uh, trains or whatever uh, or roads or ports but uh, I think it needs to be a bit more and I understand you have to really understand Chinese history because that's how they think and that's a long haul so we can begin by trying to learn the culture and maybe interact get more familiar with the place Uh, you know, uh, it's going to be harder it's going to be hard understanding the United States too, you know, from now on because When I was leaving the U.S., they used to tell me, the Republicans of today are not your grandfather's Republicans. In other words, even the Republicans have changed, the Democrats have changed. So the whole culture is changing. In fact, it's much more challenging for every diplomat, for every journalist. The world is changing so fast. You've really got to grasp it. And with social media, you know, technology and so on. And we change our views, we change our minds. So we have to be on the ball.
1: Okay, one more quick question before I open the session to the floor. I'm a bit selfish today. Um, You talked a bit about um, how Asian values and you were a bit ahead of your time and now there's a need to reinvent the democratic model. Um, But on the other hand, you hear a lot of people talking about democratic recession. They define it as a retreat of democracy as opposed to reinvention what do you think is the way forward? Is it going to be a revival of Asian values that we are going to witness in the coming few years? Or really um, a decline in um, certain rights and um, privileges that we enjoy as free citizens?
0: You know, um, I talked of contextualism. I don't think it's the end of universalism in this sense. Every country, every culture values life, values uh, good government. And what is good government? You know, they want a sense of fairness, they want a sense of equity, a sense of social justice. And they don't want po- power to be unaccountable. So accountability. You add all this up, it becomes rule of law. You know, And I think Uh, for Singapore is rule of law you know and you have to have a sense of equity you have to have a sense of social justice and you have to have a sense of openness otherwise you can't develop and change but accountability how you shape that government is up to you I always wondered why when you know when I was in the US I said isn't it funny in Asia when family members succeed you know, each uh, you, know, you have a father who's a prime minister or a mother who's a prime minister. The child takes over and Western journalists come and they say, this is uh, nepotism. You know, I have been in the United States, you know. I saw the Kennedy family, you have the Bush family, and uh, you have, um, I w- remember watching the election in Rhode Island, Senator John Chafee, when he died, his son, was appointed to be the temporary by the governor to sit in the seat. Then he had to run for elections, but he ran as an incumbent. Mel Carnahan, the governor of Minnesota, ran for Senate, I think, you know? Ran for Senate. His plane crashed, he died. They put his wife's name on on the ballot box, so his wife took over. When Ted Kennedy died, some people thought, Victoria Kennedy should take over the sea. And this is called public service. You know, in the West is public service, in Asia is nepotism. So I feel that there is a kind of uh, uh, you know, uh, misunderstanding mismatch. So I am quite happy to think that in Asia, we are working our own models of good governance. And there must be some, as I said, universal values of rule of law, accountability, social justice, so on, how you package it, you know, is, uh, and in the United States, free speech is the number one right. You know, I tell Americans, in Singapore, free speech is maybe four or five, they gasp. I said, you know, Singaporeans think it is important, very important to have a house, to have education, you know, to have a job. And then you have, you know, free speech is important, but it's not the num- number one on the list. Is that ordering wrong? Why is it wrong? Who said it, free speech must be number one? So that's why I say there's room for contextualism, but so long as we are all driving towards good government and looking after people, a people-oriented society.
1: Right, thank you. Okay, I shall open the session to the floor. The lady Maybe the young lady in uh, blue. Please introduce yourself
2: and the publication you're from and the country you're from. Maybe after that. Hello. Good afternoon, Ambassador. I'm Imelda, a fellow from the Philippines. Um, With U.S. President Donald Trump's policy to put American interests first, do you think Asian countries can still rely on the U.S. as a global leader in terms of security and economy? Thank you.
0: Now, in the region, people are trying, countries are trying to interpret what American policy is, you know, what it really means. Because it's hard to read. Apparently, Kim Jong-un can't read what America's policy is. On the one hand, I think because Tr- uh, President Trump confuses him, it's not bad, puts him on the toes. There's one good aspect of it, you know, that you scare the life out of him. But uh, the question is, can you rely on U.S. uh, policy? U.S., the United States has institutions here, it has processes here, it has dialogues here, it has assets here, all right? And these assets are ready to act. And I think you've, in the census election, you have not seen fundamentally that many changes, by which I mean in terms of the security situation. What do I mean by that? One, uh, although he threatened, President Trump threatened that his allies had to pay more, Japan and Korea, uh, that didn't happen, he didn't break alliances. All the alliances are intact, you know. Uh, The Seventh Fleet is still sailing around, you know, and they are still doing some for naughts, but they are quiet about it, they do it in a routine way without announcing all over. He's going to come to the region, President Trump, he says at this point. He had a strong reaction to North Korea, which was good and so I would say that it, I would not be so... Uh, I would not throw my hands up. I would still say the United States is an ally, you know, and uh, we can rely on the United States. What has disappointed me is that his message on trade you know is not what we are used to and uh, he is he wants in fact to renegotiate trade agreements he says he's not against trade free trade but he wants trade to do better for America so I think um, you know that uh, is being recalibrated and I watch with some concern over his statement on the Korean free trade agreement chorus Uh, I worry because this will impact on other countries in the region. I heard, for instance, um, the uh, finance minister of a country, come here, big country, say, Asian country. You know, I said, how do you resist the pressures of protectionism in your country? Because nationalisms are rising in the country. And this person said, you know, People in my country said, look, even the United States, they're so big, they're so powerful, is protectionist. Why shouldn't we be protectionist? So that is the problem.
1: Okay, the lady in white.
3: Hello, ma'am. Uh, my name is Vingas, and I'm from Karachi, Pakistan. I'm very sorry that I have no only question on the Singapore, but I generally I would like to ask you, the way you support the clash of civilization, as a journalist, we have been taught, and I have been reading, that the, use your words properly, because each word has a meaning. But when we use the clash of civilization, don't you believe that we are going to again open the chapter of problems between the civilization? To me, that this is not a problem, clash of the civilization, there is the clash of power and business in this world. And again, some scholars, they are putting on the civilization. So how do you see these words? Thank you.
0: That's a very good question.
3: She's taken objection to my
0: raising clash of civilizations again, because I think people feel that that is... uh, You see, the word clash, it depends on how you look at clash, you know. Is it the war of civilizations? I'm not sure it means the war of civilizations, but it's two ideas not actually meeting and seeing eye to eye, or two civilizations, so the question is, how do you reduce that misunderstanding and that acceptance and tolerance? But I guess I didn't have so much trouble using the word clash, but does it mean conflict? There is some conflict, but is it uh, resolvable? Some conflicts conflicts are resolvable. So I guess I'm just using it very starkly, but your asking the question has forced me to elaborate, and I'm glad you did. So I'm not saying it is a war of civilizations, but I think we have to make a real effort to try to understand each other to see how we can accommodate. Okay.
1: Nalain uh, from Nepal. Uh, we are analyzing the situation in the context of uh, rising China. Uh, my question is, uh, how do you visualize uh, the old the geopolitics, the ruptures along the way, uh, when China finally rises?
0: Gosh, I think uh, if I, any, no one has actually given the full story. The Chinese have given figures you know, and timelines of when they want to be a middle income country and when they are going to achieve the Chinese dream. They, but it's internal for themselves. Um, you know, Lee Kuan Yew uh, once said that when China rises, it will be – I'm paraphrasing him, you know, I, don't, I can't remember the exact words. It is not just going to be another player. China will be the biggest player of all times, all right? And that is the scenario. When is it going to reach that? I think even the Chinese will say that surely, you know, they will have one step forward, one step backwards, they have problems along the way, and uh, they will take a time reaching it. And right now, they seem to have their main concern with their own country first that they've got to do something about evening out the uneven developments. One Belt, One Road you know, it is about a vision for the region but it is also about China spending excess capacity developing the inner regions you know uh, nearer at the borders so they are also looking after themselves you know Uh, I can't give you a timeline how will this happen? As I said, it's going to be creeping. It's about testing, you know, what is possible. And I think the the important thing to remember, and this is where I, th- I think all of us countries in the region should bear in mind, China is trying to work out a good relationship with the United States, you know, and I think the, the, the United States wants a relationship with China. Here is President Trump. He is banging up China, and then he says, uh, President Xi is a good friend, my friend, you know. So he has wanted, he wants to develop a personal relationship, a good personal relationship with China, which means he sees that value. Now, so long as the United States and China wants to develop a relationship, I think um, that determines the outer boundaries. When U.S. and China really, uh, at conflict is very difficult for the rest of us so we have to deal with that but when will China rise what will it do will it as a risen power behave in a way that we don't understand you know at one level they are part of many global councils and groupings here at the UN they're quite you know they behave quite well in fact I when I was at the UN as ambassador we always said China rarely uses the veto. Russia uses it a lot and the United States uses it a lot. If they don't agree, they abstain. Now they are using the veto a bit more. They will use the veto over certain issues which they think affect their principle, which is when a country tries to intervene in another country to determine what's happening in that country. They don't want that to happen, I think, to China. So you get that. So. Coming back to your question, I really can't answer the question because I think it's very hard. Uh, But I can't give you a timeline. Some say that for sure by the end, by 2050, the Chinese will be the biggest economy in the world. It's not the richest country in the world, you know. But I think in terms of um, uh, military capacity and so on, you should expect that the United States is not going to be at a standstill you know they too will develop further and the one thing about the United States is that it seems to be very creative and resilient you know it was in the doldrums 2008 2009 right at the bottom now look at the stock market look at the US dollar you know and the creativity so that we have to bear in mind
1: Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'm Aki, a reporter from Malaysia. Yeah, thank you. That, uh, I want to congratulate Singapore for the first lady president in Singapore. So then just now you mentioned about uh, the identity politics. So actually, we, uh, I'm here for two months already. So uh, for this uh, election, presidential election, actually people say that, some people say that actually this is just a show. So uh, I want to know that how do you, uh, is it this is a right move for Singapore? Uh, so-called, yeah, you mentioned about the uh, identity politics. Thank you.
0: We have a reserved election. I think it is a right move for Singapore because I was, as a political scientist, even before the reserved election came, I thought it is troubling if, the, if there are three major ethnic groups. Eh? There's one others, there's Chinese, Malay, Indian and others. Now, it is troubling if some minorities don't get to occupy the presidency. It doesn't look right because the president's office is really the office that represents the entire nation, is the expression of the nation. So every group, ethnic group, must have a chance to occupy that position. And also, it has a representational role. This is what you aspire to be, this is what you want it to be. The fact that we added... A custodial role over financial resources about our reserves came later but this representation role this is what you aspire this country you know anyone can be, reach the highest office of the land that is so important and the president's role is to bring everybody together too. not very political so you don't it's not partisan that's why you cannot be a party member that's the, office of the elected president and so uh, we said if um, a minority doesn't get to occupy the office for five elections it triggers in an elected presidency after 30 years six years six times five thirty now if everybody gets elected every minority gets a chance you never trigger that provision so it's like sunset so I think it's a very good move you know and it Gives comfort; it assures minorities that they too have a chance for the highest office of the land. And by the way, to have a reserve election like that is not against uh, human rights, not against ICERT, you know, the International Convention for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, because Article One of ICERT says positive discrimination. To ensure there is equal representation is fine, is allowable, so it meets uh, the uh, uh you know uh, provisions, and I think it's a good idea. Was it a sham election? No, it wasn't. Do you know that uh, three? There were two other candidates that came out. There were qualifications, and the Presidential Election Commission sat and deliberated they didn't sort of say oh you didn't meet 500 out they deliberated to see you know how to deal with what was the papers put up the applications and it would have been good if there were an election you know but this time it was not and uh, I happen to know the president uh, Halima Yakob before she was a president and uh, she <coughs> I'm very glad that she's a president because she has those qualities Okay, thank
1: you. Thank you. I think we're gonna to turn to the left side of the room and that gentleman has been waiting.
4: Thank you very much for giving me the chance. Uh, my name is Kamran Reja Chowdhury from Bangladesh. I'm the 2015 AJF fellow. So you have, in your speech, you have given two cues. First is the reinvention of democracy and the DPR rise. So you told that the US may be softer on the DPRK as it has been nuclearized. So my question is whether the Westerners of the US is going to accept nucle- uh, North Korea as a, one of the nuclear powers, first. Second is the reinvention of democracy. It is not working in the, because of the identity politics. It is not working even in American <coughs> Western worlds. And if that be the case, uh, the main problem lies with the Uh, developing as small countries where we are facing two problems. First is the military interventions, because the military institution always molasses the democratic model in place right now, and the theocratic politics. That is also challenging the democratic values. It is spreading in South and Southeast Asia, particularly in South Asia, including India. So do you have any model or any model in discussion Alternative to the or the reinvention of democratic model that will be better suited than the present, uh, given the present global uh, polity, polity, world polity. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. I want to make a correction. I did not say the United States should be softer on uh, DPRK. What I said is that uh, President Trump has been very tough, and finally, you know, he's sort of uh, making the DPRK leadership uncertain about what he's going to do. And maybe that's a good thing because an element of surprise is not bad and restra- is has a restraining factor. You know? So I, I said that. Um, how do you solve DPRK? Gosh, you know, um, people are trying to think through. I just don't think DPRK is going to give up nuclear power. You know, there are different schools of thought, and this is just me. It's not my ministry. It's Chan Heng Chi. I think in the end, the world may have to accept uh, DPRK as a nuclear power. I read a column by Faris Zakaria, who cited Joshua Romeo something or other Ramos, uh, who proposed. non-proliferation conference again so that everybody comes dprk can be invited but it is to the table and uh, it's all new get everyone to commit and sign on to say they will not use nuclear weapons you know uh, that's an idea thrown out. i don't know whether this will be accepted but it's not easy and i think it must involve some speaking. Uh, China has to talk to DPRK, US has to talk to DPRK, you know, and I don't know what the picture is, whether there are back channels. Uh, the, the, what I read in the papers, in the headlines, is confusing because President Trump has told Tillerson not to uh, talk to the North Koreans, but obviously some talking is going on, you know. So um, the but the DPRK problem will not go away. But to your point, will the world have to accept it? I don't see how you are going to stop it. Okay, military politics and uh, theoretic, uh, theocratic politics. How what is a model? You know, military politics has moved to democracy, and many countries have watched uh, Indonesia. We're watching Myanmar, we watched Thailand, then Thailand reverted, you know. But there has been precedence for, for military gov- government, military government to move to democracy. They establish a large base party, mass party, GOKA, you know. And you run for the elections, and there you are. And you can even get the opposition coming in after a while. But, you know, the thing about politics, I'm a political scientist. We will be talking till kingdom come, and we will not have found the answers. And the dynamics of politics is really trying to find you know, processes and institutions that work. And it never always works once, because new challenges, new forces come, and the old institutions you have cannot cope. So politics is a constant churn to find institutions that work for your country. Sometimes at one stage a military govern, government may work, then at other times it's wrong. Then if the military gov- government abuses its powers, there is a problem, you know. So I... But that's the stuff of politics. Theocratic politics, I don't really have an answer because um, we've seen many theocratic models. Sometimes a country comes out of it. When you have a democracy, they vote for one that a party that's not... Uh, Theocratic, but the politics fluctuates and it goes up and down. So you get theocracy coming back or more religious parties going out. There's no stable
1: model. Thank you.
3: Good afternoon, Ambassador. Uh, I'm Marlene from the Philippines. Um, how do you envision um, the the fight against terrorism? Uh, in
2: the future with this change role in uh, the US uh, style of leadership and um, just a second question there have been worries among security officials uh, in Washington they verbalized this um, as well as in the Philippines that um, events like the Marawi siege may have happened because uh, violent extremists have been able to cross borders so Easily, they've been able to recruit and cross borders. What would you recommend for countries like the Singapore, for countries like Singapore or ASEAN, which have uh, easy uh, transit exit points?
0: Singapore is easier. We are small. We have tight borders. We don't have easy borders, and we guard our borders. It is when you have countries that are island countries, Philippines, yeah. many thousands of islands, yeah. Indonesia, thousands <coughs> of islands. How do you? police your borders. is a fact of life, you know. So you can't get a perfect answer there. And uh, it will be porous and they will come through. The thing is that in the United States actually still helps in terrorism. As you know, in the Philippines, special forces are there helping you fight in Marawi, you know, though they are a bit below the radar. And the United States was very good in when President Bush, after 9-11, and you had the problem of terrorism. They are good at information exchange. They're good at training capacity. They're good at forensics. They can still do that and can, they can still advise, teach, share information. And really, if you ask the law uh, defense people and the law and order people, they say terrorism, the first way to fight terrorism. Is the long ways to educate people, improve conditions, but really you have to exchange information. Intelligence matters. So if countries in ASEAN collaborate properly and exchange intelligence, we can help each other to defend ourselves.
2: Thank you.
4: Please. Thanks very much, uh, Ms. Ambassador. I'm Jianlong uh, from China, but I'm based in India. So.
2: Uh, uh, my question is about the uh, recent visit uh, for PM to uh, China. Uh, this visit looks very surprising because the Singapore uh, Foreign Ministry announced the visit just five days before the visit. And could you please give some clues about the visit? And also, I want to ask you: Does uh, this visit has something to do with the discussion about the? Uh, Singapore foreign policy between you and your your uh, colleagues
4: in school. Thanks very much
0: You mean the visit to China?
4: Yeah, uh, just last month Yes, PM, yeah.
0: right uh, the, Actually um, my political leaders have been making visits to China you know, every year but this year we have been stepping up our visits to China too you know Uh, What is it about? We have actual... First is about developing and keeping a relationship warm. We want good relations with China. So this visit and exchange of views is very important and very useful. And we meet at different levels. Then China and Singapore can do things together. For Singapore, we said, you know, we have this connectivity uh, project. We are interested in supporting China. In fact, we were one of the first countries to come out to support the One Belt, One Road initiative. And we want to talk about what we can do together. So that's what, why we are in China. But further, my Prime Minister said we can learn some things from China because China's technological uh, development is really quite amazing. Your startups, your use of cashless uh, You know, the way you have actually used ICT in your business. China, I think, is right now the largest e-commerce economy in the world. You know, you've used e-commerce more than anyone else. So there are some things Singapore can learn from China in terms of the way you have innovated. So I think this is very healthy. It is a political relationship, you know, and... ASEAN Singapore is going to be chair of ASEAN next year, so we have things to talk about. But we, are also, we also have economic interests together, mutual. And I think this is a good way to uh, keep the relationship strong.
1: Okay, uh, maybe to the lady then. <laughs>
3: Uh, hi, I'm Deepal from India. Uh, thank you. Like your talk was very insightful, and you made quite a few enlightening points. Uh, I had two questions. One is you spoke about reinventing democracy. Being a Singaporean, like, where does the question of reinventing come in when democracy does not seem to exist in? <laughs> to tell concept for me and secondly I wanted you to know your views that now with North Korea going nuclear if you know what would be Singapore's stand if there had to be a question to choose between USA and China right and if we talk of reinventing democracy if France if United Kingdom or U.S.A. could go nuclear. They are nuclear. Yeah, if they could go nuclear, why not North Korea? Why is it that there is all attention on North Korea? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You you. Uh, you have several questions there. Let me answer the first on Singapore democracy, then on North Korea, and I will take the reinvention of democracy together with the Singapore uh, discussion. Uh, I believe Singapore has been working for a model of its own. I dispute that Singapore is not a democracy. You know, I've described Singapore as a tight democracy. Uh, Faris Zakaria says illiberal democracy. There's there are democracies and there are illiberal democracies. I, I say we are a tight democracy, which means there is a bit less room. You know, uh, and uh, I will start by saying this. We started with the Westminster model, but Singapore is a city-state, uh, nation-state, it is multi-racial, you know, the, given it has no resources, it has neighbors around us, we, should, we have very strong ideas, and when we were born, we were not, in fact, we, came, we were born in a area which was really a bit of a conflict zone There was tension around and thank goodness ASEAN came along and we formed it didn't come along we came together to form ASEAN for confidence building so it was not an easy time when we were born we cannot just bring in a model that is out of context so we had to find something that worked we are unicameral for instance that New Zealand is unicameral Israel is unicameral we say we, are so, we have so few people, you know, it's hard enough to find good legislators for one chamber. Why two chambers? So, And we are, we're in a developmental mode. So how do you make government work fast? So all these are considerations in shaping the model. Uh, we have elections every five years, and if the essence of democracy is that the leaders should, in fact, respond to people, Their needs. Why do I need an opposition party? Except you think that will pressure the government to respond to the people. If the essence of democracy is responding to your electorate, we're very good at that, you know. So, but we we are more than that, you know. You can say what you want. Social media exists, etc. I won't go into that in such detail. But we came out with our own model. We have used uh, government-linked companies. And we have government-linked companies that are transparent, not like SOEs elsewhere. So we find our own nuances, our own form, and that is Singapore. And it works for us, you know. And if you look around, uh, President Obama, in fact, said, when people say Singapore is authoritarian, Singapore is authoritarian. He said, I bet you many Americans will want to live in Singapore, (laughs) you know. So I think that is the point. So how do you find a model that suits you? Reinventing democracy, we've been trying that for a long time. You find a model that works for you, but the government must be accountable, must have rule of law, must believe in social justice. And I think that's why you find um, the government has longevity, because of that. Don't believe that it's just force that keeps the government. You know, my PhD study was to understand why the PAP succeeded. I went to the grassroots. They deliver, and people are very happy, you know, give me my flat, the roads, the schools, etc. That's what I want, you know. Human rights, um, they don't talk human rights at that level. My healthcare, you know, and every time the citizen makes a fuss, healthcare, too expensive, you find. Big discussion. So this, to me, is the essence of democracy. You can have parties you know, in some countries, and it's gridlocked. Government doesn't do a thing no matter which party you vote in. That's democracy. What does it do? So I feel that Singapore has, is, is reinventing its model all along. We're still trying to reshape it. We just had the elected president and a reserve election. That's reinventing, too, to meet some needs. So, the process goes on. North Korea, why should... North Korea, why should they... You know, Britain and the United States is not North Korea. You know? Uh, Do you know what is the logic there? And can you actually feel safe? So, you know, why shouldn't North Korea have nuclear weapons? The moment North Korea can have, so many other countries will have. The whole world will go for nuclearization. So we had some, P5 had it, uh, number you want to freeze it at that.
1: Um, Professor Chan, since we're in a room full of journalists, I feel compelled to ask a follow-up question on your point about the Singapore model of a tight democracy. Where does the press fit in, in that model?
0: Um, hmm. I think the press has a role in tight democracy. Uh, I think it, uh and the press has to find its space. You've got to push for your space. You know, and I think that's what the press has to do. Thank you.
5: Please. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. That was a very riveting conversation. Microphone not working. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Thank you, Ambassador. That was a very reverting conversation. I'm Shohini. I'm from India. Um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, identity politics. Um, I feel quite positively about identity politics. I sense that in your talk there was a bit of anxiety that identity politics is causing gridlocks. and. Um, but I feel like in South Asia and in India, identity politics is actually giving a voice to many communities which were silent earlier. So do you think that identity politics can actually add to and make for a better democracy even if it is messy in the present? Um, Thank you. Thank you.
0: I don't mean to be against identity politics. In the West, writers are against and politicians are against identity politics. I said Singapore deals with identity politics, multiracialism, and so on. But we have a way of dealing with it. I've just finished with a colleague a manuscript on um, Singapore 2040 imagining the new diversity. And I would say that this identity politics, uh, you know, the right of uh, groups to feel their ethnicity, you have to manage this You cannot just let it you know uh, grow as it is and I think Singapore is very active in managing the ethnicity and identity politics and that is the only way for it to work if you look at France France did not you know people come in and that's fine we're all one country you can acculturate into being French but really The Arabs, you know, there's a group that live in the Bandus and uh, they're not integrated. And uh, you have all the problems today. Being, having groups side by side, living side by side is not uh, uh, integrating. So I think when your polity is that way and you have so many groups and you want them to live in harmony and things to work, government must be active and you have to have the right policies. And in Singapore, we have really worked very hard at this. Sometimes, we, people accuse us of social engineering. We, are, uh, we de-ghettoized our housing estates. There are some costs, but the result is that people mix in different groups. Earlier on, it wasn't seen to be so uh, crucial or effective. Now, when we see what's happening everywhere else, we say, wow, weren't we smart? To have done this, a GRCs to include a minority in every uh, constituency is necessary. So you prepare ahead of time. Singapore is all about the politics of anticipation. We anticipate what's going to come on stream, and we prepare for it. Now, it's very, it's a hard sell, you know. Politics that anticipates what's going to come. How do you tell your people? But Singaporeans are smart we sort of see, okay, I think this makes sense, and we've got to prepare ourselves for that. But uh, so coming to, I think you should allow some identity. You have to recognize identities. That's why we have multiracialism. Every ethnic group is equal. Every language is equal. Every religion is equal. But what else did we throw in? English. English. It became the unifying language but you should not lose your identity so every Singaporean goes to school they study English and they study a mother tongue or the tongue of their culture and you can choose you know and it began quite tight you know but now we have made it a bit more flexible
1: good afternoon um, my name is Gon from the Bank of Post in Thailand what in your opinion What should be Singapore's priorities for being the chair of ASEAN? What Singapore should do or push? And what about Thailand, the next chair in 2019? Thank you.
0: Thank you. I think that, uh, first of all, Singapore's role as chairman is to try to get ASEAN consensus. It's getting harder. But reaching consensus is important. I think we would like to... um, My ministry is working this out. I'm not on the ASEAN desk, so, you know, what I'm telling you is how I think we will move along. Uh, I think connectivity would be important, you know, and trying to um, get um, the uh, connectivity, smart cities, you know, uh, trying to help in the development of the ASEAN countries. And I think we've reached a stage where, no, we would like further... um, deepening of the integration so we've already started at ASEAN 2025 and there are areas in trade that we can work on you know we have to work harder on services in uh, moving things along. Uh, I think we have to deal with uh, must get more progress on the code of conduct you know so uh, there are quite a few areas and I think we must try I don't know whether this is the ASEAN chair, but all of us must try to have ASEAN as an idea trickle down to young people and to everyone. To be quite honest, I think ASEAN is very much still an elite concept. We should try and get ASEAN understood, taught in schools and for young people to meet. In Europe, you know, students are Europeans citizens in Europe, in the European Union feel they are in one community. I think we have to promote that
2: much more.
1: Let's turn to the left again.
2: Thank you, Ms. Chen. Uh, I'm Li Jie from China. My question is uh, about uh, arts. Because uh, I was a journalist and then I switched to art and culture because I believe uh, in a country which censors journalism so much, uh, arts and culture might be more effective in uh, impacting society. I'm not sure if I'm right or wrong, but I'm still searching. So while I was doing uh, exhibition, uh, some exhibitions in Singapore did uh, impress me a lot. Uh, So uh, I I know that uh, you also lead the National Art Council. So I'm curious with uh, how the council supports art in Singapore, and also in your opinion, um, how art uh, sustainably uh, impacts Singapore city. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Um, in fact, Singapore spends quite a great deal of money on art. I'm chairman of the National Arts Council. Uh, our budget is 90 to 100 million a year. Population 5.7 million. We give out the money to orchestras, to play groups, you know. We give out, uh, yeah. And uh, the. Uh, we give up scholarships to train people to be curators for artists and so on and we give money to do community in the arts because art is not just for the elite for a small group of people who are interested in art there is a lot of emphasis on arts and the community and it goes to the housing estates, arts for the aging because art is therapeutic in some ways you know, so I think we have a very comprehensive and broad understanding of the role of the arts. But we do give arts, we fund writers, we fund dancers, we fund companies, etc. That is not even touching the museums because the museums is a heritage board. But we do support facilities, for instance, um, housing for the arts groups. Rental is expensive in Singapore. So with my budget, we also run housing and charge artists low rates. Uh, We do a lot, you know, but as you know, you're an artist, you write about the arts. uh, Artists always feel there can always be more money, you know, but we do spend quite a lot of money. We like to spend more. I would like to have more. If our economy grows, why not? But I would argue as chairman of the arts that arts is not just a luxury. For those who want to find a reason why you should support the arts, I would say arts is good for the economy especially when you are dealing now with the new economy, the knowledge economy, the te- you know, digital economy, the location, co-location of arts and culture to next to the uh, industry is inspiring, creates a new buzz. And uh, Richard Florida talked of the creative class. If you want them to come, you have to bring in the arts and culture, deepen that, and people will come. And that will be the buzz. I think these are all the good reasons. That art is inspiring, it helps you. After all, Steve Jobs, you know, he does iPhone, but he's a calligrapher. He did a course in calligraphy and manuscript writing. That's why Apple is so elegant. Yes, and uh, I think it does help. Furthermore, we did a survey and we found that a lot of foreigners who come to Singapore, expatriates, said, I think about 70% of the expatriates said they chose to locate to Singapore because we have a lively arts and culture scene. Now that helps the industries. And so.
5: Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Doris Lee from
1: China. You mentioned uh, that Singapore, pe- uh, pe- Singapore people put uh, housing and employment, af- uh, they put uh, free speech after uh, housing and employment. Uh, This situation is quite similar uh, to China. Uh, So in your opinion, what if the government is not doing good at uh, employment and housing? Without free speech, uh, how can we hold the government accountable? Thank you.
0: You know, what I say is just my view of how Singaporeans rank. I'm not saying this is cast iron, you know. It's out there and the Singaporean government says, housing first, education, then free speech. No, it's notionally in people's mind. It's in people's mind, you know. I'm not going to press so much, I'm, you know, I'm doing quite well, I've got housing, I've got education. You bet when we don't have jobs and we don't, and there's corruption, if things go bad, free speech will jump up. You know, people don't wait to say, you know, please give me the rights. They will just speak out. And that's when they activate free speech and free speech is number four because people see government is uh, four or five you know I'm just notionally putting it there because they see government is delivering and free speech will come on top when they find government is not delivering okay uh, madam ambassador uh, my name is Patrick Lee I'm from Malaysia um, you mentioned the changing of the world order and you've m- cited various people saying that China is uh, due to become the biggest player, it's due to become the biggest c- economy but what I'm interested to know is what about all the smaller uh, all the other nations aside from the United States where would they fit into this e- equation when China becomes all these things do you think perhaps we would become tributary states or do you, will we be allowed to left uh, to chart our own course? Whatever happens. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Uh, China will be big, America will be big, India will be big. All right? What about the uh, small countries? That's why it's important to have ASEAN unity. And it is important for ASEAN to keep together. Because if you are united, ASEAN's strength is in being united. And in the past, we have seen this when ASEAN was united. You know, we talk of ASEAN centrality, those of you from ASEAN. What does it mean? ASEAN must be in the driver's seat. And why should people give you the driver's seat? Why should you be there? Because you have ideas, you have initiatives. You, and you think about the region and the world. And we think about how to bring the United States and China together, how different pieces fit together, how to bring about free trade in the region. So ASEAN being together can, in fact, have a voice. And they come to ASEAN because we are united but not threatening. You know, if China proposes something, everybody looks, uh, what is this, is it good, is it bad? If the United States proposes something, China will say no, you know. China proposes it, Japan will say no. Russia proposes it, everybody says no, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when, when ASEAN proposes it, they say, are oh, worth thinking about. So that is the strength of ASEAN. And so I hope ASEAN countries will have the wisdom to realize that working together and being together and forming consensus is extremely important.
1: How optimistic are you that there can be that collective wisdom to exercise? um, It's getting
0: harder and harder. Okay, it's getting harder and harder. First, when you expand, it is hard. Even the European Union now, they find it very hard to have everybody speak with one voice. I mean, you speak to the Europeans, they say, oh, Hungary is going its own way, Poland is going its own way. It's getting non-democratic, you know, and they're quite embarrassed, you know. So I think, I, I ask this question, is there an optimal size for groupings as an academic, you know, when you think about it, what is the optimal size? But we can slowly socialize new members. It's getting harder, but we still manage. You know, the one time when we didn't have, we didn't issue a communique, nobody wants that. Never mind that it's the lowest common denominator. Never mind that it is a like statement. The fact that we pulled everybody together is important, but we've got to do better than that. And uh, it's going to be a challenge. It's not easy.
1: Hi, Ambassador. This is Sunda from India. Uh, our Prime Minister really likes the Singapore model, with all the, <laughs> <laughs> especially the free speech at four thing. He's talking. His, his party chief is talking about moving towards a Congress Bharat means no opposition. Is, he wants to bring in a single party system. So wha- what I want to ask is, is this Singapore model scalable? Will it work? <laughs> Will it work at that scale and can it be stable and it will deliver?
0: I've always thought Singapore is sweet generous, okay? We are a city-state, nation-state, uh, and we are multi-ethnic. I think uh, a country like India or China is just too big, you know? Uh, our leaders respond very fast. The Chinese have a different way of responding. You know, it's communists, the cells, it's the mass line they've been using from the people to the people, you know, so they get feedback like that. It's the party structure, there's a bureaucracy structure. It's very different. India has to find its own. But I've always been told, and I believe it, that India stays together as united, although it is so diverse, you know, so many languages. Because your democracy is very light, you know, you just leave things be. I think any pres- Prime Minister Indira Gandhi tried to tighten India, and I think she wasn't very popular. And uh, you know, you had a, a non um, uh, Congress party come in after that. Wasn't it? I think that was it. Yeah. So uh, I'm. Uh, we are flattered that Prime Minister Modi thinks he wants to copy Singapore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, different countries want to copy Singapore. And they learn one thing. That, but I tell you, the reason for Singapore's success is that every bit comes together. We are a system. I say it more as not that it's rigid, but everything comes together, every bit plays its part. It took us years to get that. And, uh, I think when people come, they just learn one part. You learn another part, but it's all together. I once had a young woman come to the Washington embassy when I was there as ambassador. She stepped in and she said, you know, the moment I stepped through the door of the embassy, I knew I was in Singapore. I said, what do you mean? She said, there was just a feel about it. Everything clicked at the same time. You know, so I think we are a system and we don't even know it. And Singaporeans who complain and, you know, uh, who criticize the system, they don't realize that they have, in fact, been working to make the system succeed. And they are part of it and they do it in spite of themselves. And really, Singapore has a brand name. You know, I don't say this arrogantly, but we do have some brand name. Uh, people expect certain things when you say here's a Singaporean. What do they expect that you speak English? Now you speak some Singlish, you know, but uh, that you will be competent, you are honest, you do things efficiently, and so on. It's very precious, and we shouldn't get that lost. And I tell that to the young people today. You can take that for granted, you see, but I think we had to work to keep it together so I don't know that other countries can copy us you know that's our advantage you know that's the only advantage we have that you know we have this quality and brand and system that kept us afloat
1: Okay, um, time is fast running out I think we have time for only three more questions so um, let's do this really quickly maybe one question from that gentleman there and then the lady and then um, yeah
3: Hello, Uh, I'm Andy from Indonesia, still about democracy, (laughs) Um, Amartya Sen who awarded a uh, Nobel Prize, Uh, he observed that uh, no substantial famine has ever occurred in any independent and democratic country with a relatively free press? What do you think?
0: No famine, did you say famine, has ever occurred in a democratic country with a free press. Do you know when I arrived in Washington, I was at a lunch and uh, Tom Friedman was at the lunch and he said to me, to the table, you know. There was never a country that was non-corrupt that did not have a free press. I said, thank you, Tom. (laughs) You know, so by your definition, we have a free press. You know, so I don't know why Amataria said that, because uh, if you are talking, a lot of the Western countries are very rich. They are, you know, they are democracies, they have a free press, they're very rich, they have all the technology, you know, the, uh, I think one has to be reckoned with weather, climate change. If you were in Africa when desertification is taking place, I don't care how democratic you are, how do you deal with no water? You know, okay, if you are rich as well, you start uh, doing irrigation and trying to create your water. But I think resources have to do with it too.
1: I think Amartya Sen's argument was—I'm I'm simplifying it a little—is that um, with a free press, um, you can expose all the inequities that exist in your society. If the press is suppressed, all these injustices will never get exposed. I have
0: seen many countries with free presses where a lot of the problems are still there. All right.
1: Thank you. I think
0: you all know what they, which countries <laughs> they are.
1: Um, I, a follow up question on
0: on free speech in singapore i'm media from singapore journalists um uh
1: thank you first thank you very much for a very for very inspiring talk but just as like you were saying that Singaporeans put free press on the fourth to the fifth place because they have oh, the employment I see i'm
0: going to get hung <laughs> for this no
1: no no no, no, no. i'm not no, I'm not not going to arrow in that area because we have the employment and uh housing settled. but do you think there will be a possible and there is a possible scenario where the, after the housing and the employment is settled, people will want more freedom of speech. And you said it's actually happening now in Singapore. And that creates on more pressure on the government and stresses of the course. Singapore model. Of How course. do we do with
0: that? You see? Uh, of course, you are right. Um, after that. But um, I think, uh, you know, I've said that, Singaporeans will come out very strongly. Singaporeans are actually quite economic people. They're not going to waste their effort, you know. If they think things are <coughs> going in the wrong direction in a very major way, they will come out, they will speak, and so on. And so you get cost correction. But if they feel it's just a little bit, ah, uh, why am I bothered, you know? So there is that. And you find that in countries, you see, I've said to young Singaporeans, I said, don't complain about why there's no opposition. Why aren't you going to the opposition? I think it is because Singapore's problems are not that major, and you know the government is going to handle it. In countries where there is bad governance, I don't care how repressive the government is, you will find an opposition rising. Singaporeans, are, unless you say they are cowards, at which they are not, so, it has to do with their thinking, well, it's not a bad job, you know. It's okay. I would prefer this. So, I will speak, but I'm not so passionate about it. It's passion. Now, some other Singaporeans, I quickly add, uh, will say that uh, free speech is number one in their hierarchy. That's a group, but I'm talking of the majority.
1: Okay, one last question, and we have the colleague. Gaf- day
2: Good afternoon, yeah, I, as you said that the old order is Where gone. Where are you from? I'm from, I'm from China, uh-huh. yeah, Sophia from Guangzhou, China. And as you said that the old order is gone, the new order is not established yet, and China, India, of course, will have a very big player here. As, as Sing- Singapore, very paranoid and economic country, what kind of role Singapore is going to play? And the second question is what's your expectation from China
0: um, I think Singapore you are right about paranoia you know even paranoia have real fears you know <laughs> and real threats the uh, the thing is uh, Singapore has always wanted a peaceful environment in the region and we want an open environment and an environment where all the countries can where we can work together and there's free flow of capital trade and that there will be security. Now, what do we expect? And we know we have all to work towards it. It just doesn't happen. We have to build the security. Now, what do we expect of China? We would... Ex- China is going to be emerge as a great power. One day in the distant future, it could become a superpower. We hope it will be... a. Good power, a benign power, a magnanimous <coughs> power, and uh, you know, bear in uh, in mind what other countries are also interested in.
1: Thank you. Um, reluctantly, I have to bring the session to a close. But before I do that, I want to thank you, the audience, for being true <coughs> to our profession and asking very probing questions and giving Professor Chan. Uh, Challenging time, I hope. <laughs> um, but mostly, I would like to express our deep felt appreciation um, to Professor Chan for sharing your insights and your wisdom. Uh, it's quite a privilege to be here, to be with you here today. Um, so I want to invite the audience to join me in showing our appreciation in the usual way. Thank you.